All right, let's go Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. Although uh, my son was in charge of redistributing the Bibles this week. So if there's not one within your reach, it's not my fault. Well, it's kind of my fault. I put him in charge of it. All right, so... So, no, Will did a good job. All right, so uh, uh, <laughs> if you don't own a Bible of your very own, take that physical one home. Uh, we believe that God's Word is incredibly important to us. He's given it to us for all kinds of unique and special things, but cheap among all those really special things is that He gives it to us as His people to know Him. It's through the Scriptures that He makes Himself known. That He, that he And it's that knowing of Him that changes the way we see the world, that changes the way uh, we operate in and around our friends, family, neighbors, and everybody else. Uh, and so if the scriptures are what he does, uses to do that in you and through you, like just like do the, do the math real quick in your head, like you should be reading the scriptures as much as you can. You want it to change you and affect you. And if you don't have a copy of your own, Take that one. Uh, so we're a few weeks now into our effort to kind of dig into the book of Ruth together. And Ruth is a short little story, if you're not familiar with it. It's a short little story that happens uh, kind of at the tail end, but during the time period of the judges. Uh, in the middle of a few hundred years of kind of national level sin and calamity, uh, the writer of Ruth zooms their focus in to tell the story of one man's family kind of living in and around a tiny rural town of Bethlehem, right? Now, we've got a couple thousand years of church history to understand that Bethlehem eventually becomes a big deal. But none of that stuff has happened yet by this point in the story. Bethlehem is a little podunk place that nobody's paying attention to. And so the national level calamity has now kind of borne its weight, uh, bared down on uh, the little tiny town of Bethlehem through the act of a famine, Right? There's no food in the land. And, and the call there is for national level repentance. God's calling his people to, to step away from the idols that they're following, to step away from uh, their trust in all of the, the nations and peoples around them and to trust solely on him. But instead of that national level, the story of Ruth opens up with this one man named Elimelech. Elimelech, which is like, we, that's a name that probably needs to make a comeback. Those of you who are having kids soon, consider Elimelech. It means my God is king. Sounds kind of cool. cool. The one example, though, we have of Elimelech doesn't go well. Elimelech packs up his family and sojourns to the neighboring land of Moab in order to find food. But Moab isn't a step up. It's not a, a positive move. Moab may indeed have more food, but Moab definitely has way more sin and idolatry than Bethlehem does. And so it's a step down in terms of doing what God said. And the picture that is painted for us is that Elimelech seemingly kind of knows this as he does the opposite of what God is calling him and his family to do. God is calling his covenant people to act on. Rather than repenting and trusting in God alone, Elimelech chases after fruitfulness on his very own terms. But his efforts, they don't play out quite the way he hoped. The story is we're told God seems to withhold that fruitfulness from him, we fast forward through the story. Elimelech eventually dies, leaving behind a widow, his wife Naomi. Fast forward some more. 
His two sons get married to Moabite girls. Ten years go by. Elimelech's sons die as well. We're not told exactly how or why, but now we know that we have left behind three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And it's at this point that that Naomi from Bethlehem goes, you know what, I should probably go home. I should, I should turn around. I should leave Moab and go back to my people. Surely I have greater opportunity there. And so she decides to go, to go back home. Time to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem. And so she starts this journey, we're told, with Ruth and Orpah in tow. But only getting a little ways into the journey, she spins around and says, no, 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 no. you got to go home. you got to go back. Don't follow me to Bethlehem. Go back to your mother's house. Go back to your parents and try to find a new life for yourself there. They'll obviously, clearly have a better chance at success in life. They go back home to their parents' house and try to find a nice Moabite boy to marry him. So Naomi gives them permission to go. And the bulk of chapter 1 is dedicated to kind of the dialogue of these three women making their decisions. Orpah turns around and goes back home. She, she wants the life that Naomi gives her permission to go pursue. It's a good thing. But that's contrasted by just how crazy Ruth acts. We're told that instead of turning around and going home, Ruth clings to Naomi. She clings to her physically. She clings to her figuratively. All right. Uh, Ruth kind of clings to her in an incredible act of selfless love. Uh, Ruth kind of binds herself to Naomi for the rest of Ruth's life. Like, Like she formally declares an oath to the God of Israel, Yahweh, that if she ever breaks her promise, that God ought to strike her down. That's a bold declaration, right? It's an incredible act of selfless love. Naomi is understandably feeling distraught and grief and even bitter over her circumstances, but, but Ruth presses in and clings to her anyways. And despite Naomi's protest, we learn that Ruth and Naomi travel back to Bethlehem together. They're a team now. But then last week, we got, a, we got a little bit of a deeper picture into just how deep Naomi's bitterness goes. All right? got, got to swim in that depth for a little bit. The ladies arrive in Bethlehem, and it isn't very long until someone from Naomi's past runs into them. And it's been years since Naomi has walked through these streets, and at least a decade that we're told, and probably significantly more than that, but at least a decade. But Naomi is no stranger in Bethlehem. Small towns know their folk, all right? They know exactly who Naomi is, and so they greet her by name. But when they greet her by name, Naomi ain't feeling it. She blows up on them, we're told. Don't call me Naomi. Call me the bitter one, right? Even as Ruth continues to cling to her, even as old friends begin to kind of slowly come back into her life, Naomi is absolutely convinced that she is all alone in the world. That no one understands, no one has any concept of who she is and what she's dealing with. She was full, but now she's empty, she says. She blames God for it. She outright blames God for it. In a moment of bitter unrestraint, where, where what she's really thinking blows through the filter and finally comes out unabated, it just comes exploding out of her. Naomi publicly accuses God of treating her unfairly. 
But what we saw last week was that instead of blowing back, instead of returning bitter jab for bitter jab, it seems that Ruth kind of absorbs the bitterness and continues to cling to Naomi anyways. Uh, can, can we be honest? I, I need more Ruth-type friends in my life. You any better than me? <laughs> like, I, I need as many Ruth-type friends as I can get. Even more than that, I, I need Jesus to be the better and more perfect Ruth in my life and to continue clinging to me even as I'm dumb and say that I don't need him. Over and over again, I find this to be true. We also saw last week that God was doing precisely that, continuing to cling, continuing to provide, continuing to press in. We saw that God was continuing to do exactly that uh, for both Naomi and Ruth. Chapter 1 ends with the line, quote, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What does that mean? It means that God is working before they walked in the door. He's working before they walked in the door. The grain has been growing for a while, and it's time to actually collect some food. God is already working. He was working long before Ruth and Naomi arrived into town. He was and is working to provide for them and to redeem them far, far beyond what they can comprehend in this given moment. And that brings us to this morning. It's time to move on to the next scene in our epic love story. Don't you love epic love stories? Some of us do. But listen, no matter if you're dealing with love stories or any other genre of story, uh, the best stories, I think, always introduce what I like to call a butt moment. I'm sure there's probably a, a much classier, more formalized name for that kind of you know, narrative tool, uh, but I like to call them butt moments, so that'll, that's what we're going to do. All right? So, butt moments are when characters don't have access to information, but the narrator introduces it anyways. We know this to be true, but... So, Ruth's moment, but moment, happens in chapter 2, verse 1. You ready to look at it? Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was what? Boaz. All right. So, what's Ruth's but moment? Well, apparently... Apparently, all alone Naomi isn't as alone as she thinks she is. Right? We're told that Naomi has someone that she knows very well already in Bethlehem. And, and all the major English translations say that Boaz is a relative or a kinsman in, in verse 1. Uh, but the Hebrew is actually way more vague than that. It doesn't use the word that it normally uses for relative in the Old Testament. They use the word, uh, the writer of Ruth uses the word that's more closely translated as acquaintance. Ruth has, or Naomi has an acquaintance in Bethlehem. Now, we know for certain that Boaz is a relative. He's, he's from the clan of Elimelech. That's her husband's family, right? And so he's definitely a relative. Secondly, if he's not a relative, he has no rights to do any of the stuff that he does later on in the story. So we know for certain that Boaz is a relative. But it seems, it seems like the writer of Ruth wants to take the original audience on a slower journey than that. He's not putting all the pieces together for him. He's tossing out information and letting them put together the pieces. Bringing them on a slower reveal through all of the layers of this story. The writer doesn't come out and say, well, now Elimelech's cousin's son was still living in Bethlehem. He had both 
He had both redeemer and kinsman rights that might come into play later, but the writer of it's just kind of slowly drawing out these conclusions and allowing the audience to begin to put the pieces together for themselves and start answering questions on their own. And uh, it's kind of a crafty way of writing a story, isn't it? See, not only does all alone Naomi have Ruth, and not only does all alone Naomi have some old friends that still know her pretty well, but apparently all alone Naomi also has this other character floating around in the background that hasn't walked onto the scene yet. But he's coming. He's going to change everything. She knows someone from her past and we're tipped off that he's about to come back into her life. But what does it mean that he's worthy? Right? That, that's a, Boaz is a worthy man. What, what is that about? Um, well, it actually depends on who you ask. Uh, I, I try to read a lot of different you know, approaches to, you know, to explaining Ruth. I've got like 400 commentaries in a Bible study program. They just, oh, this guy says this, this guy says this, this guy says this. Man, this verse is all over the place. Like all over the place. Um, looking at different translations actually kind of tells that story. Uh, if you've got a copy of the New American Standard, I know that some of us in here prefer that as our translation, uh, it's pretty good at being the most literal of uh, the translations with the wordings of things. Uh, it says that Boaz had great wealth. Okay, rich dude, all right. King James runs along the same lines, a mighty man of wealth. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, says a prominent rich man. Okay? But then you got the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. We recommend that translation here all the time. It says a prominent man of noble character. Like the ESV, it doesn't mention Boaz's money at all. So what, what's going on? Is the dude rich or is the dude good, have good character? What, what is it? Well, again, the writer of Ruth is, seems to be more vague than they have to be. He could have said this, um, but instead, the, the writer uses two Hebrew vocabulary words, kind of back-to-back, that mean almost the same thing, but with nuance in different directions. All right? uh, gibor and hayil. All right? Those are your two Hebrew words for the day. All right? Gibor and hayil. There will be a test later. All right? Gibor usually describes the status of a man. The status of a man, kind of the outside perception of how other people view him. Uh, his stature, his power, his importance, maybe his position in society. In fact, there, the word is sometimes used in the, in the Old Testament, sometimes translated in the Old Testament as like a warrior or a hero. All right? uh, not necessarily because they're physically imposing and did well in battle, all right, but because they have earned respect by carrying out their task faithfully. They have done their duty. All right? And so they stand a little bit taller and straighter than everybody else in the community, and everybody else in the community sees that they stand a little taller and straighter. That's kind of what's going on with, with Gibor. Right? Uh, that, that's also kind of what we think is going on in Boaz. Like, there's, there's no reason to believe that Boaz is some great military hero. Not even a little bit. He's a farmer and a landowner. Right? But he's got a stature in this society. People see him with a level of respect. He's got a public perception about him that demands to be honored, demands respect because of who he is and how he's lived his life. And everybody knows it. Everybody in town knows who Boaz is and they like the guy because look at Boaz, man. He's just doing it right. The writer Ruth immediately follows that up with another Hebrew word, hayil. Hayil is all about the fullness of the possessions. 
The fullness of possessions. Quite often in the Bible, it's used to talk about material possessions, like cash money in your pocket. Right? You're carrying around a lot of jingle. Right? Uh, but it's not limited to that in the Old Testament. Hayol is also used in the Old Testament to speak about great possessions of other things. Valor, physical strength, mental fortitude. It's often used to describe someone who possesses great character. Most of the time, like more often than any other option, most of the time it's used in the Old Testament to talk about possessing a great army that will fight for your cause. Okay. So Hayol could, really, really could be talking about Boaz's wealth here. It's certainly possible. It's, it's pretty literal reading. Um, there's a couple of problems with only focusing on Boaz's material possessions here. Um, the first one is that Hiel is used exactly three times in the book of Ruth. Three times. This one here, where it's talking about Boaz possessing a lot of something, whatever that something is, um, the second time happens in chapter 3, Boaz is speaking to Ruth and says that the entire town thinks that she is a worthy woman, a Hail. Ruth is described as having Hail when there's almost nothing materially to her name at that moment. Like, so we're definitely not talking about money there. Um, the third time Hail is used in, in the book of Ruth is at the end of the story. The town elders are speaking a blessing over Boaz and they call him to act worthily, act Hail, because of the great blessing God has seen fit to give him. And so in that moment, it's about, all about living publicly with great character, following through with what God has seen fit to give you. So Boaz is a wealthy man in Bethlehem, period. There's no doubt about that. This dude don't own land if he doesn't have a lot of money. That's how the society works there just as much as here, all right? If he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to act in this story in any of the ways that he eventually acts. But the writer of Ruth, I think, carefully dances around saying exactly what Boaz possesses. They, they kind of skirt that exact answer and I think it's because they are pointing us to the conclusion that they are ultimately going to draw later in the story and that's why I kind of prefer the ESV's translation here Boaz is a worthy man we're going to see later on in the story that having the means to step in and redeem is not at all the same thing as having the resolve to step in and redeem as the story continues to play out we're going to we're going to learn that there are two individuals in this story, who have both the means and the opportunity to do something about Naomi and Ruth's problem. But by the time we get to the end of the story, only one of those guys will have had the character to have done something about it. Yes, Boaz is wealthy. He has the means, but I think far more importantly, Boaz is a worthy man. He has the resolve. He has the character, and it's going to take every ounce of both to reach the conclusion that God is drawing this story towards. Now, there, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan, I remind you, of Elimelech. All right, so Ruth steps up with initiative here, right? That's what we see. If for no other reason but so that they could eat that night. 
Like, like let's, let's go get some food. Uh, like, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Ruth has an industrious thought, and then she acts upon that industrious thought in kind of a, a resolute way. But notice, notice that Ruth asks Naomi for permission here. Well, what's going on there? Well, it seems, it's just assumption on my part, but it seems that Ruth, just as much as resolve, also has the humility to understand her place as a foreigner sojourning in Israel. She has industry, yes. She is going to do something about their issue, but she also has a humility that acts as a seatbelt in this moment that seeks to honor Naomi and the culture that she's just attached herself to. She's going to go get them. Can I have your permission to go get them? She's going to do, but she's careful not to overstep. She notices that there's some workers out in the barley field harvesting the grain. She says, hey, hey, let me, let me, let me go glean some, some barley for us. And so, so what is gleaning? All right, that's a fun word. It was a provision for the poor that God demanded of his people, Israel. Twice in Leviticus, chapter 19 and chapter 23, God commanded his people to intentionally leave the edges of a field unharvested. He also communicated, uh, commanded that anything that was dropped as they were harvesting, it was dropped on the ground, or anything that was kind of forgotten in the field as they were packing things up, that all of that was to be left as well. And so the gleaning command was repeated in Deuteronomy 24 as the law was being given to Israel again right before they were, uh, were kind of marched into the promised land, right? And so it was given in the original telling of the law and it was given the second time in the re-giving of the, law, of the law. And so the entire idea around gleaming was that those on the lowest rung of the ladder, the poor, uh, and we could categorize that as those up to and including the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, right? Specifically mentioned in all three of those commands. Right? They could come in following after the harvesters and work to secure food for themselves. And they truly worked for it. Rather than just being kind of limited to, to begging, gleaning was a loving step above that that kind of simultaneously provided help for those who needed help and maintained a little bit of dignity for those who needed the help. It's a good system, I think. Now, here's where it gets complicated. Throughout church history, <laughs> we got a lot of history we can point to. Throughout church history, um, people from multiple political leanings have pointed to the gleaning command and tried to use that as a scriptural argument for whatever kind of welfare status they think ought to be going on in our own country. People on the right have pointed to gleaning and said, see, see, they had to work for it. If they didn't work for it, they didn't get nothing. Their own fault. People on the left have pointed to gleaning and said, see, see, God commanded landowners to give up what would have been profitable for them and redistribute it so that other people could have some. So, uh, which is it? Who gets to claim the gleaning command for their political party? Both. And neither. As a general rule in life, whenever a politician starts quoting Bible verses, run away. Can we all agree on that? Good. My discipleship work here is done. All right. Rather than seeing this as some kind of scriptural justification to refuse help to those who won't help themselves, and rather than seeing this as some kind of divine indictment against laissez-faire economic policies, what Christians ought to see, should see, is that God truly, and I mean truly, cares for the poor. All the way down to the core of who they are. 
Yes, help, and yes, dignity. Give them both. Incredibly generous provision, coupled with help that actually sets them up to flourish. Those are not inseparable things to God in this moment. Those are closely coupled together. And and when, when giving the civic law to his covenant people, God demanded under threat of punishment, demanded that the people who represent him to the nations, that they are to act with the same true concern towards the poor and sojourner in their midst. Their heart was to look like his heart. Now, we are not the covenant nation of Israel. I don't know if you've noticed that. Even though our policies as a nation ought to, I think, be wisely influenced by what God handed to them, we'd be a lot smarter to do the principles that he handed off to a people that bore his name. And so uh, but our, our policies, they don't ever come by divine decree. We don't have the authority to, to do that. And so if you ever want to talk about it, I'll buy the coffee. It'll be a fun afternoon. All right? But Israel, as a covenant people, they were handed a direct command by God to work and live in such a way, to see the world and operate in it in exactly a specific way. But in case you've forgotten, I don't know if you, if you remember this, we're in the time period of the judges right now. Doing what God said to do isn't exactly something Israel is good at at the moment. Right? Not something they, they're just excelling at at this time in their life. Um, and so even though God's command explicitly mentions the sojourner multiple times, Ruth, I think, has an incredibly reasonable cause to worry that they're not going to let her come into their field. I know God said to, but I don't have to. That, that posture's never been present in the history of the church, right? And so that's the weight behind what happens here in verse 2. She says, perhaps someone will show me favor. And I use the word someone on purpose. Um, some have argued, looking at verse 2, that Ruth is specifically talking about Boaz. Uh, and so uh, I mean, it does say him, right? Perhaps he will show me favor. And so some people theorize that Ruth and Naomi have already kind of gamed this out and, and kind of by this point they're, they're hoping that Boaz is going to act in a way that they want Boaz to act, right? Uh, but I think verse 3, that's why we read it together, I think verse 3 clarifies what's actually understood in verse 2. All right, let's read it again. It says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to who? To Boaz, right? So Ruth starts working out in this big field that apparently several people all at once have specific claims to, rights over portions of. And so the whole town is out harvesting barley right now. It's the time that people go out to harvest barley, right? And so there's a bunch of people out there already. Ruth goes out to a giant barley field and starts working. She begins to follow behind the harvesters, the reapers, and glean some of the grain. And we're told that in the text that she ends up in Boaz's portion, Boaz's section of the field. I don't know if there was a fence there dividing things, or maybe they had rocks on the corners and they tried their best to walk in a straight line. I don't know. I don't know. But she ends up, happened to come to Boaz's part. So from Ruth's perspective, from, from Ruth's perspective, This is an unplanned thing. She's not controlling the situation in this moment. She ends up there without really understanding where exactly she's at. But but that's by Ruth's perspective. I told you last week that there's no such thing in this story as happened to, right? The narrator, they keep using that phrase, but they're doing so in an ironic way. She happened to come. 
what seems to the characters as chance, mere happenstance, it is always God pulling the strings. Always. And this is a consistent theme that we see run throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's not just the story of Ruth. You can turn anywhere you want to. This is, that we, this is a weird dynamic that seems to always play out no matter where you want to look in the Bible. The Bible simultaneously calls us to do what is right and reasonable, and it always gives God the ultimate credit, credit for every good thing. Both of those things are equally true. The Bible bangs both of those drums all day long. And it's been my experience, I don't know about yours, but it's been my experience that just about everybody in the world has been frustrated by that dynamic at some point in their life, if not all day, every day. Are you, am I alone on that? Probably not. So there are the, the, the you know, people ought to pull themselves up by their bootstraps types out there. They want to always try to give themselves the credits for the good things that have gone on. Look what I did. Nobody helped me. I got there on my own. And if someone else hasn't gotten what they're aiming for yet, it's, well, it's only because they hadn't pulled hard enough yet. Get to work. Quote things like, God helps those who help themselves. Even though that quote comes from Benjamin Franklin instead of Jesus. Just a smidge lower on the authority scale. <laughs> I mean, do smart. Happy he helped create our country. But no, not the same as Jesus. All right. But there's also the, the deterministic, nothing really matters types out there, right? We also got that in our world. And for them, taking the step to go and do the right thing, the reasonable thing, well, it's pointless because, I mean, why bother? Uh, the system, the universe, God, whatever they want to call it, it's always working against me. Why, why should I care? Why should I try? No matter resolve is ever going to change anything, so why put in the effort? Not only do they refuse to take simple and obvious steps towards good things, but they'll blame God and everybody else for their failures in the process. Unless you think I'm just talking about some kind of faceless character. Um, the truth is, is, I have both of these tendencies in my own heart. I don't know, maybe you're the same. I see both of these tendencies play out in my own life from season to season, even week to week. Naomi clearly fits one of these at the moment. Why, should, why bother? God has set his hand against me. No matter which one of these postures we might be more inclined towards, I think, I think we all, I know myself, I think we all have really, really short pathways into getting the balance wrong between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. I think that comes easier to us to, to get wrong than we realize. And what we need to see here in Ruth is that God is both 100% in control of every one of these circumstances and Ruth takes good initiative to do the right thing that's immediately available to her. Both of those things are true. And without both of those things being true, the story of Ruth doesn't even happen. We have no Ruth if that's not true. Without Ruth, Ruth's resolve. Without Ruth stepping up and saying, I'm going to go glean for us. Hey, can I go glean for us? They don't eat that night. They don't eat that night. But it is equally true that without God's sovereign hand guiding the entire thing, verse 4 doesn't have a chance of happening. So look at verse 4. And behold, da 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 da, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? All right, so Ruth just happens 
to find herself in Boaz's section of the field. And what do you know? Boaz also just happens to think it's time to go check on his employees out in said field. What a completely random and totally not divinely orchestrated turn of events. Boaz greets all of his workers. They all seem happy to see him. Like, that's a good boss dynamic right there. Boaz's employees love Boaz. He pulls his manager aside, points to Ruth and says, hey, who she belong to? Whose woman is that? Now, I think that's an important question. And we're, we're, not, we're not sure if there are any other people out in the field gleaning. Um, the likelihood is, is lower. Uh, we know that there are other women out in the field, but it appears that these other women that we know about actually work for Boaz as harvesters, as a part of his crew. So Ruth likely stands out here as the only person in the scene that, that doesn't belong. And so Boaz immediately understands she's out of place. Who is that? Who does she belong to? So why, why does that matter? Well, it's because there's an order of operations, I think, to Boaz's developing interest in Ruth. Some have argued uh, that there's a physical attraction buried in Boaz's question. Hey, hey, who's that? (laughs) What's her name? (laughs) But if Ruth's presence is truly unique, if she stands out as the one person who does not fit in that scenario, the one person who does not belong there, then Boaz's question takes on an entirely different tone. And it also, I think, helps us start to make some sense of a small controversy surrounding verses 6 and 7. So look at it with me. Verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. All right, so Boaz asks who Ruth is, and the manager tells him, Oh, oh, well, that's the young Moabite woman, you know, from Moab. There's a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge in that answer, right? Now, you know, you, no, Boaz, you know exactly who that is. We all know who that is. The whole town has been talking about Ruth since they walked back in the door. The story's been told and retold over and over and over again. Surely, Boaz, you have heard of this young woman, the Moabite. We're not going to look at it until next week, but we're told that Boaz, is, that Boaz hears this answer and immediately understands who Ruth is. And so, yes, the gossip appears to have reached Boaz. So where's the controversy in that? Well, we're not exactly sure uh, what the end of verse 7 says. Um, We got some ideas. We we see the Hebrew, but we're not really sure what the Hebrew means. Um, The manuscripts that we uh, trust to use to kind of help us understand idioms, and there's a major idiom at the end of verse 7, they, they all disagree. For those of you who understand the vocabulary, the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and the Vulgate all disagree wildly on what the manager says right here. And so for those of you who have no idea what just came out of my mouth, um, the way we typically kind of figure out what a slang term means in ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek is to look at how cultures more closely attached to that culture uh, kind of translated that phrase. Right? And so if we've got this thing that, that ha- probably has a lot of innuendo buried in it or some kind of slang buried in it, we go, okay, this culture is way closer than our own. What did they say? 
All right? And so uh, when we look at those earlier translations, they're all over the place. Like they don't agree at all about what the manager says here. Uh, they come to vastly different conclusions. And, and because of that, all the really smart people who spend their careers and lives making sense of what the Bible says, they do that for a living, they disagree about it too, all right? And so our copy of Scripture, the English Standard Version, basically just said that Ruth has been working all day long except for a short rest. But if you're looking at a New American Standard, it translates it completely differently. So it says, quote, So she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Do the math real quick. Whether you caught it or not, those two translations explain exactly opposite things. Exactly opposite things. Ours says that Ruth has been working all morning at the task of gleaning in the field. The NSB says that she's been waiting patiently all morning for an answer and she's, uh, for an answer to being allowed to glean in the field. She's been waiting in the house the whole time. So which is it? We don't know. <laughs> we have no idea. Insanely smart people who know more Hebrew than you and I will ever have any hope of understanding, they are divided on this issue, and they've been divided on this issue for a couple hundred years. Literally dozens and dozens of options, of explanations that have been argued back and forth for longer than I've been alive. So what can little old us do about situations like this? I mean, should we be worried that we can't trust what the Bible says here? I mean, that's kind of the road we're walking down. We can't trust the, the Bible? Surely this is a crack in the foundation of our trust in the Scripture's authenticity. So I think it's as good an opportunity as any to show that even in the extremely rare circumstances, the moments where we're not exactly sure what exactly it says 100%, we still don't have to worry about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Even in those moments. See, before we even get to verse 7, we have already seen Ruth act with both incredible humility and incredible resolve, right? We've seen her character play out in those two ways clearly. She has both done everything in her power to work and done everything in her power to humble herself by honoring others. And so the two main categories, the big thoroughfares that all the other categories branch off of, the two main categories of what is, in fact, going on here in verse 7, it is either Ruth is working her tail off or Ruth is waiting patiently for an answer so that she can honor the landowner. Every option fits into those two lanes. No matter which one it is, absolutely nothing changes about what we know about Ruth's character already. She's already done both of these things by the time we get to verse 7. The current in both of those options flows decidedly towards, wow, look how, how awesome Ruth is. Man, she's, look what she's doing to work and to honor. How great is Ruth? Newsflash, the authority of the Bible is not undermined by either one of those choices. Whichever it is, one day God will let us know. But whichever one it is, it's good news. We do everything in our power to prove our academy sure. We, we speak honestly about what we do and do not know. And we trust God that he is good and that he is sovereign over even the answers that have not been chosen to be revealed to us yet. Our calling is actually no different than Ruth's was. Get to work and trust God for the parts that we can't control. Get to work 
and trust that God is pulling the strings. And so in the trajectory of Boaz beginning to take notice of Ruth, and he's heard the stories, he's heard the gossip. He's got all these people talking in his ear. Even his manager has something to say. But I think the first thing is that he sees. He sees who Ruth is. Right? And it's true. We're not exactly 100% sure what it is that he sees, whether it's waiting patiently or working her tail off, working diligently. It's either her honoring patience or it's her diligent work ethic. But he truly sees Ruth. Next week, we're going to see how he responds to truly seeing her. But what about today? How, how can we respond to what God has shown us in his word this morning? What, what do we do with it? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean in to what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think he's showing us that, yeah, he, he's absolutely in control. And, and he calls us to get up and go to work. Both. We're to take the next right step. And oh man, I'm willing to bet that we don't even have to talk about it for very long. I'm willing to bet that you probably already know what that next right step is. You've known what it is for a while and you haven't acted on it because <laughs> I just don't know. No, be Ruth-like. Go to work. And trust God's bigness as you do. Whether it's a work thing, a church thing, a witness to your neighbor thing, you already know. It's clearly laid it out for you, so go act on that. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. That's a time that we uh, set aside to kind of give you space to begin to respond in, in a way that's bigger and deeper and truer than just what's going on in your heart. And so if you want somebody to talk, I'll be down there if you want somebody to talk to, let's do it. But if we're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, how can, how can you respond? The answer is simple. By meeting Jesus, Right? crazy idea. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the good and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it hell. Not a fun thing. It's another situation of God's sovereignty closely connected to man's responsibility. The, the king of all justice forever will give to all exactly what we are owed, period. The Bible also teaches that God is not content to leave the story there. That God the Father sent God the Son to put on flesh and dwell among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as a substitute for your sin in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And the one who has conquered that sin and death that you and I cannot conquer he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. God's sovereign work and man's responsibility. Both. And you can do that this morning. You can, you can respond to Jesus. You do that by turning away from your sin and turning to him as Savior and Lord. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's by formally joining our church family or being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe he's calling you to take the gospel somewhere not named Nashua, and it's time to publicly say yes to that calling. I'd love to help you in those regards too. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for being a God who both equips and works on our behalf. God, would you give us a holy, humble resolve 
to do the next right thing. But also understanding that without you working before us and in us and through us and after us, our next right thing has no point of succeeding. God, we love you. I see in my own heart times where I'm intimidated by the, the next step or get mad that other people didn't take the step I thought was appropriate to take. <laughs> Humble me. Humble me before you. Help us as a church not only trust your bigness, but also take the steps we need to take. For those of you in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Draw men and women into your kingdom this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.